Looks like it's on the end of my arm. <laughs> it hit me like a thunderbolt about two or three o'clock this morning that I do not believe we are under grace. You and I. Now, since I've got all of you disagreeing with me, we are not all in one place because some are listening by phone. And I don't think I will wade into the shot pool here and ask if we are all in one accord. I think we'll leave that alone. Looking at the church of God scattered around the world as it is. Now, let's look at the words of Jesus Christ <clears throat> in Acts 1. Just before Christ left, his disciples asked him in verse 6 if he would restore at that time the kingdom to Israel. They felt Christ was coming back right away. I think we've seen that, and it's been pretty well established over the years that there's enough internal evidence in the New Testament to support that. Verse 7, And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the season which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. And then he departed, went up to heaven. That was the last word. Now, here was a group of people who had run like cowards shortly before this at the time when Christ was about to die, with the exception of Peter, who did not run away, but instead he hung around to tell everybody he didn't belong there and what wasn't him. So he had a little more courage, perhaps, didn't run completely away. But here was a man who had been a fisherman, then a disciple, then a coward, back to being a disciple. And there's one more category for Peter, which we'll cover shortly. Now let's go to Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. The whole beginning of the New Testament Ephesian era of God's church was all together of one accord. And God gave them unbelievable power. I don't know whether they had an opening prayer or not, or just what had occurred, but they were all there waiting, and that's always the perception I've had, about ready to start, but they didn't really know what to do. They'd never done this church thing before. They'd been with Christ, and he did all the teaching, basically. They asked questions once in a while, inanely. And he gave them answers they didn't fully comprehend. So they didn't really know what they were there for. And as they sat, there appeared cloven tongues like fire and sat on each of them. Now, this would get the goosebumps going, because you're sitting there like we are here, and suddenly, whoosh! A sound of a mighty rushing wind. I have been in tornadoes. And that will frighten you to the very depths of your soul. In Miami, we had one pick up a block from the house, go right over the house, and sit down a block to the other side of the house. And I thought somebody had laid train tracks overnight. I didn't get out of bed to go check the kids. When that thing went over, I jumped straight up out of a dead sleep in bed, standing in bed. I had to jump off the end to go see if the kids were still alive. The sound of a mighty rushing wind, like Twister if you saw it. I haven't, but that scenario. And with fire. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit gave them utterance, and they began to speak in all these different languages. It wasn't a 30-day Berlitz bullet, bullet Spanish course. They just suddenly, these were people from all over the world, every nation under heaven, it says in verse 5. 
And they began to speak and understood each other. This is just the opposite of the Tower of Babel. What an incredible miracle that was at Babel when he confused all their languages and suddenly they couldn't understand each other and ran away. It caused separation, didn't it? But here, God moved just the other direction so they could speak all the same language and it was a uniting force. And scary. I don't know all these languages. And yet here I'm speaking ten at once, maybe. <laughs> I mean, more than that. He, he mentions different people from all over the world. There were Jews in Jerusalem from all over every nation on earth. You think Israel hadn't spread out? They'd come there for Pentecost, and some of them were dwelling there, but their families, their homes, were elsewhere. And they spoke different languages, though they were Jews. And suddenly, they could all understand each other. The miracle and the hearing and the speaking both. What an incredible outpouring of power. Wasn't gibberish, wasn't Pentecostalism. I mean, these were intelligible languages, not grunts and hoops. And so they were amazed. And word went out very quickly, radiated through the city. You've got to come see what's going on here. There's fire and there's wind, and all these people are speaking and understanding each other. People came running from all over Jerusalem. What is this great thing? And then some Pentecost afternoon quarterbacks began to question what's going on here. <laughs> this is really interesting. They were all amazed, verse 12, and were in doubt, saying one to another, What means this? What's going on here? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. Now, there's some incisive analysis. Wine doesn't do that to you. Now, you might slur and slobber around and speak unintelligibly under wine, but you don't speak 14 or 20 different languages under the influence of wine. Give them an O for effort here. That means nothing. Give them nothing for that one. But now here's Peter, who had never given an opening prayer or a sermonette, <laughs> who suddenly goes from coward disciple, remember the, uh, the steps, to powerful apostle. Just like that. Never spoken before in public, probably in his life. He was a fisherman who wagged around behind Christ for three and a half days, who did the speaking, three and a half years, who did the speaking. Now, Peter must have been amazed, too, because what did he think? This must be like the days that Joel was talking about. Incredible, fantastic things beginning to occur. This must be the end of the age, Peter thought. This is it. Christ is coming back. The young men are going to dream dreams, and the old men have visions, or however it is, and their daughters will prophesy. And on my servants and on my handmaids will I pour out in those days of my spirit. And even the handmaids, the girls, are going to prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Now, he'd seen a few signs here. Mighty rushing wind, tongues, uh, cloven tongues of fire. His knees suddenly developed the ability to stand up. And he could talk, speak in public. What incredible miracles, you think. And then he went on to describe the day of the Lord. Got a question for you. Did it happen? No. There hadn't even been time at this point for anyone to dream dreams. They hadn't gone to bed. This was still Pentecost. There hadn't been time to have visions. There weren't heavenly signs everywhere. This was a very small, partial fulfillment of Joel. Certainly not the full fulfillment. Now, I want to explain the Peter principle to you here. Some of you have read the book over the years, where everyone rises to his level of incompetency. That's not the real Peter principle. The Peter principle is, Old Testament prophecy 
is for the New Testament church. It's for us today. Prophecy, the Bible, is dual. Some commentaries will say it's not. It just has to do with Judah. It just has to do with Israel. It has nothing to do with us today. Don't you begin to believe that. How many times did Herbert Armstrong tell us, the Bible's written for the church? And secondarily to the world, to the nations, to Israel as a physical people. How many times did Paul say the same thing? Galatians 4, 26 through 28. Jerusalem, the mother of us all. Galatians 4, 20, or 6, 16. We've covered this before, but I want to nail this down. He calls the church the Israel of God. Romans 9, 1 through 8, he goes through the whole thing again. Paul explains it that way. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he said, All those things in the Old Testament are written for us, upon whom the ends of the world shall come. On and on it goes. Hebrews 12, or not 12, yeah, 12, 22 through 23, I think it is back there. Let's go back, and since I can't quite quote it, I'll turn back to it. Verse 22 of Hebrews 12. But you are come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. So he equates Zion and Jerusalem to the church of the firstborn. Us. In the Ephesian era and today. Now this is becoming vitally important. Because it's interesting, is it not, that Peter did not go back and preach a sermon on the whole book of Joel. He broke right in the middle of the book, chapter 2. Why? Because he saw the Spirit of God poured out in large measure. And that's what it reminded him of. So God led his mind right back to the middle of the book of Joel and picked it up there. Why? Because the early New Testament church was under grace. They were in the good graces of God. They were in the favor of God. They did not have sin imputed to them at that point because God had said, I will establish this church and I will be with it and I will give you grace. I will give you pardon that you do not deserve. Did Peter deserve pardon after he had run? Did the others deserve pardon? Absolutely not. Bunch of cowards. But when they stuck around for these 50 days and waited for Christ to do what he said he would do, they performed the proper works, as the sermonette was about. God gave them grace in time of need. And with that grace came great power, came might, came the ability to preach, came the ability to heal. Right after that, Peter's shadow-passing healed people. Peter and John walked in the gate. The man got up and was healed. Incredible things began to happen. They were under grace. Unmerited pardon and favor of God, both a legal delineation as well as an emotional state. Good favor and under forgiveness. I lost the axe here somewhere flipping back and forth. He goes on down, and they, after he's gets into the sermon on Joel, and then he talks about David. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? This is an amazing time. What shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized. And of those who gladly received his words. Now those were fighting words for maybe some of these people. Repent! And 3,000 were baptized that very day. Pretty good day's work. And what did they do, verse 42? They continued steadfastly 
in the apostles' doctrine. That was number one. They accepted the truth and followed it steadfastly. The faith once delivered by Peter here, the doctrine once delivered by Peter, and he didn't just give what is given here. It says he gave them many, many more words that day. And they continued in fellowship, not forsaking the assembling of themselves together, and eating together, fellowshipping, and in prayers. So they began to do the works that would keep God's grace upon them. I want to break off there with that particular part, realizing the power that was given there. And I want to tell you, brethren, you ain't seen nothing yet. And what we've described here. This is inspiring to see what God did with that church and realize that that capacity is there. But let's go back now to the book of Joel. Joel is considered a minor prophet. Now, that designation is made because he didn't write a lot and because he didn't write or prophesy for very long. So he was one of the minor as opposed to the major, like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah. But what he had to say is not minor at all. It is a major and a powerful message. What does the word Joel mean? The Lord is God. That's quite a statement. I want to remind, before we get into this, that Peter, the apostle, the head under, of the church under Jesus Christ, said the book of Joel is for the church. Let's get that firmly in mind as we go into the book of Joel. That is the Peter principle, for today at least. He had others. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of the fool. Hear this! You old men, that is, you who have been around a while, you have seen everything that's gone on in the church of God over the years, the last 20, 30, 40 years, 50. All of you hear this. Not just you old men, but all you inhabitants of the church. Has this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Now, what he's about to ask you, what he's about to tell you about, he says, has this ever been in your experience? Tell your children of it. This is going to be a big deal. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Remember, this is instruction for us. And what he's about to tell us about, what we're about to learn, is something that is going to be repeated for generation after generation after generation. This is important. Now he begins the message. That which the palmer worm has left, the locust has eaten. That which the locust has eaten, the canker worm has eaten. That which the canker worm has left, has the caterpillar eaten. The commentaries tell me that these are simply four different kinds of locusts. In fact, they've been able to identify about 80 kinds of locusts, but Joel mentions four. When these locusts come across the land, there is utter desolation. Nothing left behind. There are stories in South Africa when the locusts have come through of a swath of country 10 miles wide and 180 to 90 miles long where there is not a blade of grass. Everything gone. Matthew 24, 2, there will not be one stone left upon another when these things start happening. So he says there's going to come desolation bigger than anything. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and howl, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. What does alcoholism do? What does sin do? If alcohol and wine is considered a sin here. It stupefies. It wrecks the brain. It puts you to sleep. It disorients you spiritually. Drunk on the wine of her fornication, he, God uses it that way. 
drunk to the place of not knowing what's going on, wandering about aimlessly, stumbling, slipping, falling. Sound familiar at all? We consider the church the last few years. <coughs> the new wine, the doctrine, the truth has been cut off. For a people, a nation, a folk, a heathen, and the imagery that Joel uses all the way through here is as locusts, <coughs> devourers. And we can perhaps put faces and names to it now. For a nation has come up upon my land strong without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has cheek teeth of a great lion. When you examine a locust up carefully, his face looks like a lion. He has laid my vine waste. What is God's vine? His church, his people. He's laid it waste. You are the vine, I am the vine, you are the branches. He just laid the whole thing waste. And barked my fig tree. They, they, the locusts actually eat the very bark off the trees. Now, this is not a short-term problem. Now, if you destroy the wheat and barley, that's a, basically a one-year problem. But if you kill the bark on the trees, the trees die, and that is a long-range problem. So we're dealing here with something that is not only hard and deep, and harsh, but we're dealing with something that has long-lasting effects. Some of us have felt that when we felt things beginning to sort of move and we got queasy feelings back in the early 70s and things progressed or degressed worse and worse and worse over the years until the church began to fall apart in pieces and sections. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. He's departed. The church has been stripped bare. We have all felt this, like a virgin about to get married, and suddenly her intended is gone. We thought at one point it was about time for Christ to come back and we would marry Christ and everything would be well. And then the whole world fell apart. Church-wide, all heaven broke loose on us. Lamentations 2, 1 through 8, where Christ said at least 26 times, I did this to you! The meat offering, or the meal offering, and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The meal and the drink offering were utilized along with all the other sacrifices, all the other offerings, because ultimately they represent the fine flower, the, the body of Christ, and the wine, the blood of Christ, filled for us. And he's telling us, brethren, right here, that that offering is cut off. We are not under grace when we sin. It is not a constant situation. Didn't Mr. Armstrong always tell us, if you commit murder, they put you in jail, and maybe on good behavior, not killing the guards, they let you out in, well, I used to say 20 or 30 years, let's say five years now. Does that give you license then to go kill somebody else because you were under grace, got a pardon from the governor? No! So you can fall in and out of grace, or work your way into grace and fall out of it is more like it, because the works are not right. So let us not think that because salvation is by grace through faith that we automatically have it. Does this sound like, as we go through this already, and we're not even partly done hardly, does it sound like we are under the good favor of God? Does it sound like we have unmerited pardon for our sins? God chastens every son whom he loves. And if we are not chastened, we are bastards and not sons. And God has been chasing us for years now. Does that mean we ought to crawl in a corner and eat worms and die? No. Lift up the feeble knees and hands. Make straight paths for your feet. 
let the lame be healed. That doesn't mean we ought to be discouraged. But maybe I'm having trouble getting that across to you at the moment. <laughs> because I'm talking some pretty serious things here. Now, let's see what our attitude ought to be here. The meal and drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. Reminds me of Ezekiel 34, where the sheep are gone. They're crying because their flocks have disappeared. I had recent contact with one worldwide, former world, or well, still a worldwide congregation up in West Virginia. They've gone from 300 down to about 30. 90% decimation. I just heard a report from Big Sandy, Texas. That congregation was 2,200 people. And now apparently it's 175 to 250. 90% more or less. Gone. Of course, that was students departing and everything. Some of those may be going back to their homes and, and still be part of that church. But it gives you a little bit of a picture of what's happening. Reminds me of Ezekiel 5, where God said, Pestilence, famine, and disease, and the sword will come on the church, not just the world. And a thousand will fall on our left hand, and ten thousand on our right hand. Spiritually dying, spiritually starving. That's where we are. We've talked about this before. But Joel really puts a microcosm on it. The Lord's ministers mourn. This isn't talking about the Baptists and the Methodists. This is talking about God's ministry. The field is wasted. The land mourns. The corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil languishes. Remind you of Amos 8.11. A famine not of physical things, but of the Word. See, Amos kind of thought it was spiritual, not just physical too, didn't he? Be you ashamed, O you husbandmen, the ministry of the fields and the flock. Be ashamed. He really gets on the priesthood, the ministry. Should we be standing up saying, oh, we're doing great. The work is growing. This is happening. No! Be ashamed at what is happening to the church of God. O oh, you vine dressers for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. What happened to that great harvest, that 150,000 people that we had? It's diminished greatly. The vine is dried up, the fig tree languishes, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Can we all just say we've had great joy in the last 11, 12, 15, 20 years? There's been a lot of heartache. There's been a lot of introspection. There's been a lot of fear. There's been a lot of confusion. I don't consider that joy. Now, there's been a certain joy in the Holy Spirit here and there, but I'm talking about the overall attitude in the church of God. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Howl, you ministers of the altar. Come while night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. For the meal offering and the drink offering is withheld from the house of your God. If God does not give us grace and forgiveness, then we don't get spiritual and physical healing in the way that we wish, do we? We got a lot of it back in the 50s and 60s. And it began to diminish and diminish and diminish. And finally, the church even, the ministry, began to say, God doesn't even heal. He can't. His arm is shortened. It doesn't do any good. It wasn't God, it was them. It was us. The posture of the ministry today should not be to stand up and say, things are going great. No. We have not been great, brethren. God holds us accountable 
because we taught wrong things and we accepted and condoned and allowed wrong things and did nothing about it. We have people today who are dying spiritually. And we have people today on our prayer list who are dying physically. And it's time to lament and weep and howl because it hurts. I hurt yesterday listening to Mike. And I hope we all hurt. Because Linda Buchanan United is dying. Mark Harmon died. Carol Ford right now is dying. And there are others. We're not seeing lots of healings. We're not seeing lots of demons being cast out. We're not seeing great works, are we? God is angry with us. And we are not under grace. We are under chastening. We are under the penalty of God's anger. Now, what are we supposed to do about this? Verse 14. Sanctify you a fast. The Hebrew here apparently is more than call a fast. Sanctify a fast. Set it apart. Emphasize it. Call a solemn assembly. Not just a happy, happy church meeting. A solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land of the church into the house of the Lord your God. This isn't just Israel. And cry to the Lord. This is a top priority. Just as Peter said, Repent ye! Alas for the day, and he gives the context here, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, was Peter technically correct or not when he said this is that spoken of by the prophet Joel? We understand there are six days before the seventh Sabbath rest in the millennium. Peter was at the beginning of the fifth year, apparently, or the fifth day, excuse me. A day is a thousand years with God. So Peter was actually only off a couple of days in his prophecy. We are at the end of the sixth day now. This is it. We are near the day of the Lord at the end of the sixth day. Now, technically, he was right when he said these are the last days, because at the beginning of the fifth day, that was over halfway through the week. And it was a partial fulfillment of what we see in Joel. But Peter did not address chapter 1 because he didn't see that happening in front of him. He saw grace. We see chastening. So we have to go back to chapter 1. See, at the end of the sixth day, the whole book applies to the church. And we've seen pretty well what is the church today already described. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand as an instruction from the Almighty shall it come. God is not described as the Almighty except very infrequently in the Bible. He uses many other terms, but only in apocalyptic times does he say, The Almighty One. And he does here. as destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meal cut off before our eyes? Yes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed is rotten. 
You can't even plant a crop under these conditions. You can't go out and preach the gospel, brethren. You can't do it. God will not bless it. Some are trying it. What's happening? Not happening. It's dying on the vine. The seed is rotten. Doesn't do any good to go out there and plant it. God will not bless it. He will not heal it. The seed is rotten under their clods. The gardeners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. That's you and me. Psalm 80, we sing. In fact, it's page 60, I think, in our book. I looked up this before the sermon because it came to mind, where it says, Restore us thy grace. Then we shall live in the light of your face. That means grace is gone and has to be restored. And we've sung that for years and didn't realize we weren't under grace anymore. We were under penalties from God. Penalties that are going to lead to death unless we do something. And we see our brethren dying spiritually around us by the thousands. The death penalty is upon us. O Lord, to you will I cry, for the fire has devoured pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry to you, for the rivers of water are dried up. The living waters of Ezekiel and Revelation are not provided for us. And we have to search in this famine of the Word for good teaching. We need to understand where God's focus is now. If we are to do the things that He wants us to do that will restore His grace. Now, what else does he instruct us in? Let's go to chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Didn't we read in Hebrews 12 that Paul calls the church Zion? Blow the horn in the church. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord comes, for it is nigh at hand. The end of the sixth day is upon us, and the day of the Lord is almost here. And perhaps spiritually speaking, it is already upon us, the church spiritually, and is about to be blown all over the world, physically. But have we not already seen a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness spiritually around us? You bet we have. And a strong, a, a great and strong people, there's not been ever the like. Neither shall it be any after, even to the years of many generations. These locusts came in clouds back then. And we have had a mighty and strong people rise up. A heathen group in the church of God that has basically destroyed it. <coughs> and God caused it. He put them there. We sing about God's army. Do we really realize what we're doing? This army is a destructive army. It isn't God's army of saints marching off to war. This is people God has raised up to destroy the church. Not completely, but 90%. Fire devours before them. Behind them a flame burns. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them. I think there was some semblance of a well-taken-care-of garden back in the 50s and 60s. And then the blight hit. And behind, there's desolate wilderness, and nothing shall escape them. They've affected us all, haven't they? We all appearances as the appearance of horses. They say you can hear the locusts coming for six miles away when they're coming in those kind of hordes. And boy, could we see this heathen doctrine coming. Before their face, verse 6, the people shall be much pained. 
All faces shall gather blackness, which is symbolic of famine. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march everyone his ways. They'll just break us down and we can't stop them. We couldn't stop them. We had to flee for our very lives. We had to come out of there. They had become part of Babylon. I won't read all of this. For also now, says the Lord, turn you to me with all your heart, even with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. This should be our attitude. This should be our posture. This should be what we are going through. Now, these are hard words. But, brethren, we're in hard trials. We're in tough times. We're in confusion and frustration. And rend your heart and not your garments. They didn't rend their heart, their garments normally in the Old Testament when somebody died. It had to be a horrific happening. It had to be a horrible death. It had to be terrible news. And they would rend their garments and put on sackcloth and ashes. We're talking about the end of this age. We're talking about the apocalypse of Revelation and of Joel. Rend your hearts and not your garments, and turn to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repents him of the evil, or relents. Sound like it's time to preach the gospel, get on with business as usual? Not on your life. This is a critical time. This is an emergency situation. People are dying spiritually and physically. We have an incredible responsibility before our God. Who knows if he will return and relent? Who knows if we will rend our hearts if God will not turn this whole thing around and begin to give us the power and the strength and the might of Acts 2. He will. He promises it. And we're going to see it now. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Okay, here's another emphasis of that warning in the beginning of the chapter. God does things for emphasis. He repeats for emphasis. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, those that suck the breast. This is so much of an emergency that we're to call the bridegroom out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. In ancient Israel, when you got married, you had a year off to cheer up your wife. Didn't go to war. Your responsibilities were kept at an absolute minimum. God moves into this sacrosanct area that people cherished. Wouldn't it be neat to have a year's honeymoon? Well, God said, this is serious, people. We're going to even interrupt this. Call everybody, even the kids. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. You had the porch of Solomon out in front of the temple. And there was this bit of a vestibule there, and the ministry could go there. But they couldn't go into the altar. What is God telling us here? God is telling us the ministry has been shut off from the altar of God. We're weeping and crying on the porch. It hurts to go in and anoint someone. And nothing happens, brethren. We weep and we cry before the throne of God. 
and He will not answer because of our sins. Are we under grace or are we not? I want this changed. And you want this changed. I'm not going to yell at you today. I'm going to let Peter and Joel do it. Because that is who God used to deliver these messages. Nobody is above this. No minister in the church of God anywhere is above this. I'll tell you the two witnesses, living and breathing, I believe, today, somewhere, are not above this. They're probably keeping the day of Pentecost today, somewhere. We're that close. There's not time to grow a couple of them, 80 or 90 or 120 years. One man's opinion. But what does it even say about them, whoever they are? Joshua was so filthy, so unclean, that he had to have entire new garments and new character. And even Zerubbabel, who's supposed to be a type of Christ, has so much pride and so much self-righteousness and so much vanity and so much ego, that even he is told, not by strength, not by might, but by my power, says the Eternal. No one is exempt from the words of Peter and Joel. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every last son of us. And all the ministers weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and give not your heritage to reproach, that the heathen then should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? It's really frustrating to pray for someone. And a week later they call up and say, Can you do that again? humiliating. It's embarrassing. I want God to hear my prayers. For your sake, I want God to hear my prayers. And John's prayers and Richard's prayers and anyone else's prayers. Put in a position to pray for God's people. But we've got to do something in order to accomplish that. In the kind of power and strength that we feel we need. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. He will remove our shame and embarrassment, it says. Yea, the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you reproach among the heathen. I will remove far off from you the northern, the heathen, the army that I have sent against you. I will drive into a land barren and desolate, with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea, and his stink shall come up and his ill savor shall come up, because he has done great things against. You want to know the fate of the worldwide church of God, particularly its leaders? There's your verse. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Yeah, they did great things against the church, but God's going to turn it around and do great things for it. And perhaps we have to hear the bad part. We have to do what is necessary. We have to do the works, as John was pointing out, so that God will turn with favor and with grace. He will turn to us. Fear not, O land. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness is spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad, then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord you God. 
For he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. So God is going to begin to send the spiritual rain back once we do our part. The floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. Real abundant spiritual food will return. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. The years we've gone through this, God is going to make it all better. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Not wandering from group to group saying, I'm starving to death. Can I get food here? And praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be ashamed again. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. I don't, right, let's see, what time is it? <clears throat> I've got some scriptures on that I was going to turn to. Let me, uh, let me hit a couple of them right quick. Psalm 100 and verse 3. Know you that the Lord, he is God. That's what Joel means. It is he that has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He is our God. What, what did Peter say? Acts 3.12. What's what? I'll flip back there real quickly. Because all this power and strength and energy began to come into the church. And what did people begin to do? They began to look up to Peter and John as if they were some great thing. Verse 12 of Acts 3. And when Peter saw it, he answered to the people, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? This is the power of God, he said. doesn't have anything to do with Peter or John. <coughs> this is God doing this. Isaiah 45, verse 6. Or verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God before me. I girded you, though you have not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I am the Lord. And they'll know it all the way around the earth as the sun goes. Everyone is going to know. What happened in Acts 2? A few thousand came to know that. A very few thousand. But they got the picture. And they repented and were baptized and gladly kept the apostles' doctrine. But it was small compared to this. This is going to encompass the earth. Since we're back here, 43 verse 12 of uh, Isaiah. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Now let's go back to Joel. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Chapter 2, verse uh, 32. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Oh, wait a minute. I skipped over some here, didn't I? <coughs> sure did. Some I wanted. Let's go to verse 28. He says, you shall know that I am God. That's where we went with these other scriptures. My people will not be ashamed, and it shall come to pass afterward, after you go through all this that we've been rehearsing, all this trauma, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. This is not talking about the millennium. This restoration comes before the millennium. Because after we go through this process that you and I are in right now, God will restore and he will pour out his spirit. Peter didn't alienate it to the millennium. He said, this is now. This is in the church today. And God is going to do it in the church again today. 
you think it's all in the millennium? Turn to Daniel 11. Not so. Daniel 11. He's talking about the abomination of desolation, which we've already seen spiritually happen in the church. We saw the blood of swine offered on the altar, the, the, the swine of false doctrine offered on the altar in Pasadena. That has happened in a spiritual sense, and we fled from it. It's going to happen in the world. You see, because in Acts 8, which Richard talked of yesterday, Simon Magus began another church because he wanted the power Peter had, and Peter said, no, you have to repent. And he said, I'll buy it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Go to hell with your money, Peter said. So the guy went out and started another church. And it has been juxtaposed against God's church ever since. Fighting God's church through the Middle Ages. And that great universal church and her harlot daughters are going to fight God's church again. Right at the end. But what's going to happen? Daniel 11, 31. Well, he talks about have the... Uh, Let's go to verse 30 first. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. So the beast's power is going to be in communication with those who forsake God's covenant. I would say that means the hierarchy in Pasadena are going to be involved with and part of it. <laughs> I preached that a long time ago. It's already happened. Very officially one of the harlot daughters today. Evangelical Pentecostals. They've already joined the beast. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, boy have they, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Now, is this the millennium? Exploits before the millennium. And I'll prove that right now in the latter half of this verse. Yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. And when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. Once the millennium is here, the people of God are not going to fall again by flame and sword. This is before that. Joel is talking about before that. These signs and wonders are just ahead of us. The power is just ahead of us. We just have to make sure that we have God's grace restored to us as individuals and as a church, as a greater church. But I fear that only about 10% will, because God says he will save a remnant of physical Israel and a remnant of the church. And the rest may go into the tribulation and have to be repentant there to turn to God with all their hearts there. Today, the choice is yours and mine. Will we do what Joel told us to do? Chapter 3. For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, and let's again apply this to the church, just like Peter did. This isn't Daryl. This is Peter and Joel. This is Paul. He said, apply it to the church. I will also gather all nations or peoples and will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. He's building up for a big battle here. A tremendous battle between the enemies of God, Satan the devil and his church, the beast and the false prophet against the church of God led by the two witnesses. They're going to go head to head. Nose to nose, mouth to mouth. From a distance. God throws out 
<laughs> this was an interesting thought in here in verse 6. The children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have you sold to the Grecians. How did this whole thing start? This wholesale paganism. We were sold out to the Greeks. They started sending the ministers to Fuller's Theological Seminary to learn Greek. You ever hear of Kyriakos Stavronides? And his circular Greek reasoning? Did you ever listen to some of those sermons about there is no risk with Jesus Christ? I nearly threw up when they played that tape. I nearly walked out that day and should have. I don't mean to jump on Kyriakos. I don't know Greek very well. Kyriakos. I, I can't even say it now. I don't mean to jump on him. But they got into the technical Greek and first thing you know, grace, no faith, no works. Happy, happy, joy, joy. God throws out a challenge now. There's a time, Isaiah says, when they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Uh-uh. We're going to have a head knocking. God says here in verse 10, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. The NBA finals were just completed, I guess, Friday night. The Bulls finally whipped the Jazz. I watched part of that series. The Bulls won the first two games, and then it went to Utah. 19,100 people in the Delta Center there to watch the games. And 600 million watching television around the world. Two and a half times approximately the entire population of the United States. I can't fathom 600 million people watching a basketball game. And I was one of them. But it was interesting the way they hyped the thing. They had an announcer there just before, and they had a, a decibel meter on there about how loud it got in there. And people were putting fingers in their ears and earplugs. The coaches of the Bulls was putting them in his ears. It got up to 110 decibels, and they built this thing up. And the announcer said, Are you ready to rumble? Are you ready to rumble? Yes! Are you ready to rumble? Yes! And they won two games. And then they ran out of rumble. <laughs> and they lost the game. And they went to back, back to Chicago and lost another, and it was over. But this is what Joel is telling us, brethren. God is going to start a rumble. Isn't it Revelation 16 or 7? 16, I think. Where it says, God will stir them up to do this thing. That's what Joel is telling us right here. Beat your plowshares into spears. We're going to settle this thing. Get ready to rumble, Catholics. Get ready to rumble, Protestants. Get ready to rumble, world, because I am going to set my church against you, and we're going to fight it out. And I'm going to send Jesus Christ on a white steed with a vesture dipped in blood and a sword, and we're going to have blood up to the horse's bridle. That's where we are. This is about to happen. We have the timeline here that Joel has given us. You will go through terrible famine of the Word. And you will be chastened betimes. You will be whipped. And you will repent 
And then I will show power such as the world has never known. Acts 2 is going to look like child's play compared to this, because every human being on the face of this earth is going to come to know who Jesus Christ is, and where He is, and what He's doing. This is big. The Lord is God. Almighty God. And He is going to heal the nations. He is going to heal the church first. And we are going to see healings and demons cast out and fruits like you have never heard of. And it won't be by man. It will be by the Spirit of the living God who gives grace to those who obey, who are ready to go all the way, not just rumble a little bit and sit back and do nothing, but who will put their hand to the plow and will not turn back. They will fight with every bit of their being with their whole heart and rend their heart and not their garments and turn to God with all their being. And the dying will stop. And God will bless. End of transmission.